Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is contact with the deceased research. My guest is Evelyn Alsasser, who is an independent researcher and expert on death-related experiences, notably spontaneous and direct after-death communications, near-death experiences, and end-of-life experiences. Over the last 35 years, she has dedicated a large part of her time to the research and dissemination of information on these phenomena. Over the last decade, she has focused her work specifically on spontaneous and direct after-death communications. She is the project leader of the five-year ongoing research project, Investigation of the Phenomenology and Impact of Spontaneous After-Death Communications, with team members Chris Rowe, Callum Cooper, and David Lorimer. She is the founding member of the Scientific Committee of Swiss IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. She is author of numerous books, book chapters, and articles, and her books have been published in many languages. They include On the Other Side of Life, Exploring the Phenomenon on the Near-Death Experience, Talking with Angel about Illness, Death, and Survival, Lessons from the Light, What We Can Learn from the Near-Death Experience, co-authored with Kenneth Ring, and her new book, Spontaneous Contacts with the Deceased. A large-scale international survey reveals the circumstances and lived experience of after-death communications and their beneficial impact, which is our topic today for our conversation. Evelyn is based in Switzerland, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Evelyn. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Hello, Amy. I'm very happy to be here, and I thank you very much for your kind invitation. So to get us started, can you share a little bit about what is an after-death communication? An after-death communication occurs when somebody has the impression to be contacted by a deceased person. Normally, they know who the person is, but not always. These contacts are spontaneous, meaning they're non-solicited, and they're direct, meaning that they are not taking place with the help of a spirit medium. They happen directly between the deceased person, who is allegedly uh, establishing the contact, and the person who is sometimes, but not always, bereaved. So there are different types of ADCs. They can be perceived by four of the five senses. The person who has the experience, whom we call an experience, we could also call him uh, him or her a recipient, we, we call them experience, they can either see the deceased person, they can hear them, they can feel touched by the deceased person, or they can smell a fragrance which they immediately 
put in connection with a deceased person being a characteristic, uh, characteristic smell of the deceased person, can be a perfume, an aftershave, uh, uh, tobacco, or any other fragrance which they associate immediately with a deceased person. Then we have, sorry, then we have a disease during sleep. When falling asleep or waking up, and we also have the experience of simply feeling the presence of the deceased person, being sure that the deceased person is present. They can even localize them in space. They say, my deceased father was standing in front of me a little bit to my left, for example, but they don't see them, they don't hear them, they don't feel touched, and they can't smell any, any fragrance. So that would be just the impression or the sensation of the presence of the deceased person. And you explored these topics for yourself personally because? Well, my interest was first for several decades with near-death experiences. I've worked in this field for a long time. I've written books and book chapters and papers, one of them with Kenneth Ring, Lessons from the Light. So for many years, my interest was with, with NDEs. And then maybe about 10 years ago, I suddenly got very interested in spontaneous and direct after-death communications, and this is now the field I'm working in. Yes, and your amazing yeah. new book that is just very extensive, seems quite comprehensive of many ways that people can have these spontaneous and direct communications. And one way that I kind of think of it is that it wasn't elicited from the experience. It was something that seemed to spontaneously occur. Sometimes you mentioned in your research that the people were bereaved or grieving, but that wasn't necessarily all the, all the time. No. Yeah. And, and through your research, uh, which I'd love to explore a little bit more because there's so much fascinating information that I think that can really help people. Uh, through your research and your experiences over the years, your own personal fear of death, you say, is non-existent anymore. Yes, that is true. Well, you know, my interest in those subjects started really when I was very young and I was a teenager. I was very worried about the thought of death which I imagined like something very dark, very cold. I was very really worried about this subject, even though I had no immediate reason to be worried about death. Nobody was ill in my family and I didn't have any health issues. It was just, you know, a concern I had. So that's what brought me to studying your death experiences and eventually after death communications. And yes, indeed, today when I think of death, I think of love and light and something really beautiful. So yes, it did radically change my conception of death. That's beautiful. And I'm hoping that that will help many of the viewers and listeners here today as well. And also in reading your research, I really felt um, quite soothed and comforted. I actually read a majority of it. It just worked in my schedule on the first anniversary of my own mother's passing. So thank you for that and your team members. And it it seems that the the research the impression i got was that it wasn't for most people a scary experience to receive these contacts 
No, it is not at all scary. In our research, which took place with over 1,000 persons, to be precise, 1,004 uh, persons completed our questionnaire in the three languages of the project, being English, French, and Spanish. And of those people, only 12% said that they were scared. But when we took a closer look at their experience, you know, our research is with open and closed questions, so it's a mixed methods analysis, so we, we studied the open questions when they could explain with their own words in a dialogue box what happened to them and what is their impression and the feeling about their experience. So when we asked those 12% who said they were frightened by the experience, we found out that it is more uh, an effect of surprise of living something that seems impossible. And it is indeed unusual in our Western society, this idea that the disease, they are still alive somewhere and they're still able of contacting the living. That is not the dominant impression of reality we have in our Western societies. So for people who are convinced that death is the end of everything, of course, they're very surprised to see their deceased father sitting in their living room and smiling at them. It is, it is impressive. So the surprise effect is certainly one of the reasons that gave them the impression that they were living something impossible. And then also immediately some of them, they question their own sanity. They say, well, is something wrong with me? Am I having hallucinations? So this is also a worry that comes quite quickly to a small part of the people who have those experiences. For our sample, it was 12%. Yeah, it strikes me. I recall one of the stories in your book about, I believe it was a woman. Was it a nurse who was... Um, I believe she was having a cesarean, and I think it was maybe her father who came to her, but she had enough mind because it was a challenging delivery to not share, or she felt she needed to not share her experience because they might then turn it into a, a psychiatric situation and make a already difficult situation worse. So she kept it to herself. Um, but your research shows that, that these experiences can actually be quite common. Yes, I remember this case very well. It's a beautiful case. Uh, she had a very difficult delivery and there were some worries about her son, about his health, because it was an early birth. So she, she was in a great uh, state of stress for herself because she was in a lot of pain, but also for the baby. And then she had this ADC with her deceased father. It was very short. These experiences are always very short. A couple of seconds, the most, a couple of minutes. So once she had had this perception with her deceased father, she was absolutely calm and reassured because he had told her that the baby would be fine. And so would she. And all the worry, all the stress was instantly over. And even when nurses and doctors told her, yes, we have still this and that challenge with her baby. She patted her, their hands and said, don't worry, my baby's going to be okay. <laughs> so that shows the effect, the very powerful effect of these experiences on the persons who have them. It's an immediate, immediate relief of fear, of stress, and they know that what they were told during the contact is going to be true. Right. Yeah. And, and her baby, even though the baby was in the, 
the neonatal ICU for several days. She felt very confident. And her baby, I believe, did go home, I think it was about four or five days later. And that was what's so striking about your research is that many, like you say, many of these messages can be very brief. Um, sometimes people have conversations, but sometimes it's a very simple message. And, but it has a very profound, deep, lasting impact on the individual. Yes. Uh, according to the type of ADC, would it be visual or auditory, auditive, tactile, between 60 and 87% perceived a personal message. Because what they say, the very fact of having an ADC is already a message. The message that my deceased family member or friend is still alive and still able to contact me. So this is the message that is inherent in the very fact of having an ADC. But in addition to that, 60 to 87% perceived a personalized message. Although those messages are obviously individual because they're addressed to a specific person, they're quite homogeneous. And the main message of the disease is, I am alive and I am well. I'm at your side, I'm watching over you, you're not alone in this difficult period of bereavement. I am still here, I'm still with you, I know what's going on in your life, and you're not alone. This is really the main message. Also very interesting are information of pre um, messages um, providing previously unknown information. And one of our team is currently working on this subject because these cases are evidential. When somebody perceives an information during the contact, which they didn't know beforehand. And we have a good number of those cases which we are currently analyzing. Yeah. And you want to get the message out that these experiences are common, normal, and healthy. I like that word healthy. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Yes, we do insist on this point, which is important. It's nothing anomalous. Even though those experiences are called anomalous experiences, I don't like this impression because this is a normal, very current, and as you said, and as we say, healthy experience. So yes, they are very frequent. Um, there are several estimates according to the research studies. We stick to a conservative figure of between 50 and 60% of people have one or several ADCs during their life, which is huge. Yes, I've, I've experienced them. At, have you had one yourself, Evelyn? I did. Are you comfortable? Do you want to share or would you rather keep it private? I'll keep it private. You know, it's interesting because what we found out, among many other things with our study, that people who like to share it and others who say it was so personal, it was so deeply moving and so important for me that I prefer to keep it private. So I am, um, I belong to the second category. I prefer to keep it private. I understand. I had an after-death communication, which I'm now understanding what it was. About 10 years ago, one of my good friends passed of cancer at a young age in her 40s. And she came to me in a dream. And I've now learned that phrase, you know, more real than real. 
And she said the exact message, which seems to be an overarching message of what your research has shared, is that she said, I'm alive. We don't die. I'm, I'm good. I'm well. And it really helped for me. And as you share in your, in your book and your research, that it seems to help people with their grieving and their sense of loss to realize that, wait a minute, they're not really completely gone. It helps them tremendously. It has a lot of impact on many levels. It has an impact on their belief system. It has an impact on the grieving process. It does not necessarily have an impact on the sadness. This is something which we found out. For example, 44% said that their sadness was reduced and for 10% it was eliminated. But for 31%, it remained the same, and for 2%, it even increased. This is very interesting because knowing and being completely convinced that our diseased loved ones have survived physical death and are well in a dimension which we cannot even start imagining, so we don't know and probably we don't need to know, we just know they are somewhere in a place or in a state, maybe it's just a state of consciousness, in which they are happy and doing well and watching over us. The connection, you know, this inner bond is still there. The love and affection and the tenderness have survived death. And this is an important message. So this inner bond, this relationship is still there, although, of course, very different. We don't have a contact with them on a daily basis, not at all. ADCs are rare and very privileged moments. There are, in fact, I would say, moments of grace. We don't have many of them, but if you're lucky enough to have some of them, and 80% of our participants had multiple ADCs, so it's quite common to have several ADCs with the same or, or different cis persons. But you see, the, the impact on sadness is not so clear-cut because what remains, of course, and what is so difficult is the physical absence of the, of the significant other. They're not here anymore and they will not come back. So this is, of course, the most difficult part of the grieving process to accept this fact that they will never again come back. So sadness is impacted only partly, but what is very strongly impacted is their belief that they're still alive. Only 1% of our participants do not believe that there is life after death. And also only 1% are not convinced that the disease can contact the living. So there is a very significant shift in their understanding of death, of the afterlife, and also of their belief system uh, and of their own conception of death. For example, their own fear of death has also significantly decreased. They're much less worried about their own death because now they're convinced that we all will survive uh, physical death. But it does not prevent them from having to go through the grieving process. If you have an ADC or if you have had no ADC, you need to do this work of the grieving process and accept the permanent and definitive physical absence of the deceased loved one and learn to live and reorganize your life without this essential person in your life. Yeah. 
You mentioned the term an anomalous, and I think that sometimes, of course, that word is used to describe something we don't fully understand. And thank you again to you and your team members and other people who've done work in this area to help us realize that it is something that many people do experience. And also, I think that word is used to kind of describe something that we tend to put in the category as metaphysical or spiritual, when really, when one really contemplates it, it's all connected. It's not necessarily, you know, one or the other, although it seems that because we're not able to, well, it's not, I was just about to say you're not able to physically see the deceased person. Your, some of your accounts, people actually describe physical manifestations. Can you share some of those experiences? Yes, um, apparitions, they come in the third rank. I believe I send you a table of the occurrence by type of ADC. So in the first position, we have sleep ADCs. 62% of our participants had an ADC when falling asleep, during sleep, or when waking up. And they immediately say it was not a dream. It was completely different from a dream, much more real, much more memorable. So 62% uh, had an ADC during sleep, but 52% of those were woken up by the contact. And this is important. So it's not only dream ADCs, not at all. 52% were woken up and then their experience fell into one of the other categories. Second place, tactile ADCs, 48%. And then visual ADCs, which we just mentioned, 46%. This is more than we expected. We didn't think that apparitions were as frequent as that. Then 43% auditory ADCs. 34% ADC of sensing a presence, 28% olfactory ADCs, and 21% of crisis ADCs. You think it is important to spend two minutes talking about crisis ADCs, which are extremely interesting during a crisis ADC or an ADC at the moment of death. The person who has the experience is informed of the significant others themselves that they just died. For example, let's take an example. They're woken up during the night. They see their mother standing in front of them, smiling, telling the person, you know, I'm leaving now. I love you. Don't worry. Everything is going to be fine. Five minutes later, the phone rings and uh, the hospital if she was ill, if she, had, or if she had an accident, for example, informs the person that the mother had just passed away. So this is very important because, you know, materialists often say that ADCs are just wishful thinking or a compensation, an unconscious compensation of the grief, of bereavement that people would be so desperate of having lost somebody they love that they imagine having had this contact. But that doesn't match the data. In any case, it doesn't match our data because uh, for the crisis ADCs, which are happened to 21% uh, of our participants, they were not yet grieving. They were grieving afterwards, of course, but not at the moment when the experience happened. And also, 
and that this is also important to mention, 12% of our participants perceived a person, a deceased person they didn't know, which is much more than we expected, and we're going to look into that uh, more, more deeply because this is very interesting. Why do these experiences occur? How do they unfold? What impact does it have on experience? And it is true that they seem to be of a completely different nature because they have the bond of love and tenderness between the experience and the deceased person. So they can be frightening, they can be disturbing, and often the experience, they don't understand why this deceased person they don't know has contacted them. Are they maybe frightened? Are they maybe not aware that they're dead? Do they need help? So that can be quite disturbing for the experience. But for the 12% uh, who had the contact with the person they didn't know, of course, they were not bereaved. So the wishful thinking hypothesis doesn't match the data for those cases neither. Then we have ADCs for the third person. They're quite common. We have a good number of them in our database. When somebody perceives a message to be communicated to a family member or friend of the deceased person. So maybe they know the person, maybe let's say it's an acquaintance, a neighbor, they know they died, but they were not very close to them, so they were not bereaved at all. And then they perceive this person who asked them, could you please tell my family that I'm fine, they shouldn't be so sad, I'm doing well, please tell them that I'm still alive. So in these cases, the experience are not uh, bereaved, of course. And also for ADCs for protection, for warning and protection, which as the name indicates, um, help to avoid or permit to avoid uh, dramatic events like an accident, like a fire, like a drowning, like something really could be very dangerous or even life-threatening for the person. They are informed, they are warned by a deceased person that this will happen if they don't take certain steps, which then most of them take, not all of them. I'm going to come back to that just in a minute. So uh, those types of ADCs tend to happen many years after the demise. That can be even years or decades after demise. When the person is not bereaved anymore, or maybe was never bereaved, let's imagine the case of a, a man who has a contact, uh, an ADC for protection, of a warning from his deceased grandfather. But when his grandfather died, he was a child. So he was, of course, at the moment of the ADC, not bereaved anymore, or being a child, maybe he was never really bereaved. But what is very interesting, most of our participants heeded the warning. They took that on board and they didn't do the action that was supposed to bring them into big, big trouble. So nothing happened because they followed the advice. But some of them didn't. And I remember the case of a young woman, and that's a very interesting case. She had this perception that she's going to have a very serious car accident and that she shouldn't take the car. But she didn't really completely trust her perceptions. So she said, no, I want to go to this place and I really I want to take the car. But since I have this 
odd feeling, you know, I had this perception, I'm not going to take my daughter with me. So she left the daughter at home, she took the car, and she had a very, very serious car accident. She was in hospital for several months. So the warning, which she did not follow, became became true, which is not very often the case because normally people, they take the advice and then nothing happens because they don't take the action, which could be potentially really dangerous for them. To reiterate, your research was 1,004 participants across three languages, English, Spanish, and French, and had 194 questions. And I believe you shared that all of the participants, even though it may have taken them an hour to two to, to complete your survey, all of them completed it. Not all of them, but most of them. We checked that very few dropped out during the process of completing the questionnaire. So that shows how important this experience is for them. You know, they really want to share it. They really want to participate in a survey, in a research project, because they know it's difficult to talk about ADCs. Sometimes they never talk about it. And sometimes they say, this is the first time I tell somebody by completing your questionnaire what happened to me 25 years ago. So it's not easy for them to share them because often they're not believed. Or people say, yeah, of course, you're, you're bereaved, you're probably a little, a little bit depressed, or you must have imagined of having seen your deceased husband, you know. So that's very painful for them because... They know it's true. For them, it's true. Nothing will make them change their mind. They know this happened. And they would like to share it because it was so beautiful and it was so important for them. And when they're not believed, it's quite painful for them. And this is also one of the reasons why it is so important to do research on ADCs, to talk about these experiences, to make the most current knowledge about ADCs available as, as widely as possible, not only in academia, but also for the general public, and I would say even mostly for the general public. That's what I do with my books, which are really meant for the general public. And I received many emails and people say, I'm so glad I know, I'm, I now know I'm not the only one who had this experience. I thought this happened only to me because I didn't hear about ADCs. You don't hear about them on TV, they're not in the, in the media, nobody talks about ADCs. I knew a little bit about NDEs, which are quite well known now, but ADCs are not yet known by the people. So they said, yes, I had this experience and it was so important for me, but so difficult to share. So indeed, yes, they were apparently really pleased to fill in our questionnaire. So this is a five-year research project. We have finished the first part, which, as you said, were for the language groups, English, French, and Spanish. And currently, we are in the second phase, which will uh, finish in June 2024. And next month, we are going to reconduct the, the survey by using, of course, the same questionnaire in German and in Dutch. And then we will also um, do it in other countries and on different continents. We would like to do it in China and in India, maybe in Africa, and certainly also in a Muslim European country because we would like to analyze if there are cultural differences between different, you know, continents, different countries. 
For the time being, for the first three language groups, English, French, and Spanish, Spanish, there doesn't seem to be many cultural differences, but there are not so many cultural differences in these countries. But we will see in the second phase of our project if uh, we will get some, some findings in this, in this respect. Well, I love what you're doing and a program that comes to mind around after death communications that I think displays it quite beautifully is the show Six Feet Under. They show certain after death communications, although sometimes you wonder if it is a psychological projection, uh, but, but it shows how they can happen to people and how they can assist them and support them as they go forward. One of the themes that you share in your research is how powerful the emotions are for people when they do have an after-death communication. Oh, yes, absolutely. An after-death communication is much more than the simple perception of the deceased person. What is really important in these experiences are the emotions perceived, well, felt by the experience, but maybe also perceived from the deceased person and the information. The information from the deceased, I am alive, I am well. Then the personalized messages, you know, tailored to the life situation of the experient. The previously unknown information, evidential, very important. So yes, the emotions, the emotions are probably really the essence of these experiences. And it changes their life, you know. There is really a before and an after. They have a different conception of death. They have a different conception also of their own forthcoming death. They will all die one day and we are all more or less frightened. And that goes away completely. So that can also change a lot in their life because when you have a different perception of death and you're convinced that there is an afterlife, that changes a lot in your daily life as well. So yes, they're profoundly, profoundly transformative. They're very, very beautiful. They are very important to them. They help them a lot in their bereavement process. But as I said before, it doesn't take away completely the sadness of having lost a beloved person, of course. Would you like to share the mood of the perceived deceased when the person had their after-death communication? I think that's fascinating. The elements which I put in red and pink, they're all of positive mood. And they sum up to 81%. 81% of the perceived mood of the deceased were positive, serenity, bliss, eagerness to comfort and compassion. Then we have more negative emotions perceived by the experience. 6% of the disease seem to be sad. Now, by looking at the testimonies, we found out that they're not necessarily sad in their alleged new form of existence but at least part of them seem to be sad for the family and friends. So I can read you two short um, testimonies to uh, illustrate this point. For example, one of our participants wrote for this question, 
He was peaceful in himself and sad for his parents. He died suddenly in an accident. So yes, the perceived deceit was sad, but in this case, he was sad for his family, for his family, and not necessarily sad in his new alleged form of in his alleged new form of existence. Then another one. My mother's, wo mother's voice was familiar, but she seemed to be making a great effort to speak with deep pain, strength, and sadness. Eager to learn about my condition, she asked if I was okay. Then we have 3% of the deceased who were perceived as being agitated and 2% of being frightened. Now it is possible that some of these perceived deceased person maybe didn't know they were dead. Maybe they were in a state of confusion. So we have some testimonies going in this direction. One said, on the evening of my partner's death, I was in touch with him, feeling his fear as he began to understand that he had died. Another one wrote, he needed help, and he didn't know where he was. But their fear and agitation may be only a, tr a transient state. We say that because of some testimonies we have in our collection. One of them said, in the first dream ADC, he was very frightened. He had not understood that he was dead, sudden death. And then during the second contact, he was very serene. Another one said, just after his demise, my love was agitated and then sad. I think at that time, he didn't know he had died. Then everything I perceived was happy, full of love and compassion, with a strong determination to support me. Then we have a very small percentage, 1%, who were perceived as being threatening. So it was not easy to find good cases because there are so few of them in our, in our data collection. But we need to look at that more closely. But at first sight, it seems to be the case that most of the deceased person perceived as threatening were unknown to the experience. So again, you know, the bond of love, the bond of tenderness is not there. So it can be, of course, frightening to perceive somebody you don't know and you know the person is dead. You don't know why they're contacting you. So what we found out, you know, with this question about the mood of the perceived deceit is that there seems to be a dynamic evolution of their mood. They were sad or maybe agitated or maybe, fright maybe frightened at a certain state. And then later, during a second or a third ADC, then they were at peace. They were, you know, feeling, feeling serene and just, you know, eager, eager to support their family member or friend. So it is possible that the mood of the disease is not constant, but evolving. And the figures I present in my table would therefore be only a snapshot of, um, with the state of mind of the person at the, at the given moment, but maybe if there would, if there were another ADC later, maybe a couple of months later, then the impression would not be the same anymore. So I think it's interesting to see that there is an interaction also between the disease and the living person who has the experience. And that shows also an important point. Apparently, our deceased loved ones, they know how we feel. And if we are so crushed by their death and so unhappy, it seems to affect them. It seems to sadden them. 
So it's, of course, very difficult to do, but I think it's important for the bereaved person to know that if they're really very, very, very unhappy for a very long time, it's not good for them, but it's probably not good for their deceased significant other neither. So it's easy to say don't breathe anymore. It's impossible to say it's sad to lose somebody we love, of course. But I think it's important to know for the people that what they feel, what they go through can also affect their significant other has died. A majority of the people who completed your survey described the loved one or deceased who came to them, it wasn't always a loved one, as over 80% positive experience. And you're saying that of the remaining, many of them maybe were experiencing sad feelings because they were really feeling sad about the loved one. And I also noticed that you mentioned in your research that sometimes it seems that when a person was contacted by a deceased they didn't know, it could be that that deceased was either wanting to give a message to somebody else or I know in some of the instances it's unknown why they're being contacted but maybe there's more exploration to be done there as to why sometimes people are being contacted by somebody they don't know although it seems that most often they do know the individual. Yes of course absolutely and they identify them immediately even during and they of sensing the presence of the deceased person when they don't see them, they immediately know who is the deceased person. So there is an instant knowledge of who, who is this person, who is the agent behind the, the contact. Well, what you address here is an ADC for the third person. So if, 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 if they perceive a deceased person who asks them to please bring a message to their family member, to their friend, telling them that he's fine and they shouldn't be so sad. Even if they don't know the deceased person, that is not frightening for them because they got this message, they know what this is all about. They know that there's a purpose in the contact they had. And then, well, they just have the difficulty of bringing this message to the concerned person. It's not always easy to ring the bell of your neighbor and say, I have a message from your deceased husband. So <laughs> communicating the information might be a little bit difficult. But that is not frightening for them because they know why they had this contact and they know what is the purpose. It can be frightening when they don't know why the deceased unknown person contacts them. It gives them an impression of maybe he's in trouble, maybe he has a problem, maybe he expects me to help him, but how can I help him or her? This is when it can be a little bit frightening for the experience. And in your research, you even broke down the types of people who uh, contact their loved ones. So you have parents that in include... Yes. In-laws, surrogate parents, um, possibly a spouse, even an ex-spouse, a partner or a first love, and so forth. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yes, well, this is really unsurprising. This is what we expected. So it's really these contacts take place in a very, in a family context and in a partner context. So parents, in-laws, surrogate parents come in the first place, and you can see that the figures are almost the same for the three languages, very identical. Then we have partners, spouses, first love. I put first love because we have several cases when somebody had a contact with the first love. Maybe they in college, 
maybe they were 16, they were in love, it was their first love, and then they didn't, didn't see the person anymore for 40 years. And when this person dies, they can have a contact with him. We have several of those cases, which are really nice. So a first love is important. So even if they were not in contact anymore for decades, that can happen. And we have several of those cases. So the only difference for the, for this category of, of spouses, partners, first love is for the Spanish, they said it's only 8%, whereas it is 19% for French and English. This is the difference. We don't really know why this is the case. We Maybe if we have a closer look, we will understand. For the time being, these are the figures we have. Maybe one explanation is that the Spanish data set is the smallest one with only 148 participants. So it so happened that in this category, there were not many contacts that took place. Then we have grandmother, grandfather, friend, acquaintance, colleague. They only come in for in fourth position. So it's really an experience that is very family related and relationship related. More than something more ex external like friends or colleagues or acquaintance. That doesn't happen so often, although, of course, it can also happen. Son and daughters, fortunately, not so many. People have lost a son and a, and a daughter, so this is uh, that ranks quite low. There is nothing really amazing in this table, but it was interesting to see who are the persons they have, to, they have perceived. You have an emotional bond graphic and data. Can you share yes. what that is? Yes, again, I think this is not surprising. These experiences take place between people who were very close. For the, for the English data set, the one I sent you, it's 60%. The relationship was extremely close and loving, very close 13, quite close 11%. So this is uh, more than three quarters of the cases. The relationship was really very close and very loving. Then we have smaller percentages, quite distant, distant, confrontational, extremely difficult, and deceased unknown. And for the Spanish data set, this is unknown, uh, sums up to 12%, but this is for the English graph, it's only 4%. But what is interesting that when the relationship was difficult, maybe there was unfinished business at the time of the death, maybe the death occurred suddenly, a heart attack, an accident, they couldn't like uh, make peace before the person died. So there are still relation difficulties with, which sometimes seems to be settled during an after-death communication. And we have a good number of cases when the experience told us, you know, I was upset with him. We had a fight before he died and we couldn't make peace before he died. But during this experience, I felt all the love. I felt that he had forgiven me and that helped me enormously in my grieving process because I know that now the relationship has been mended. That was very important for those persons. Another person I rem remember, a woman who said shortly before my, my father was taken, he was in hospital, was taken for the surgery, he had, a, had um, an argument 
And then they took him for the operation and he died during the operation, during the surgery. So, of course, for her, the guilt was just enormous because, you know, she said, why didn't I say the things I said? Because it was not a major surgery. She thought that, you know, it would be fine and they can settle their difficulties once he wakes up from the surgery, but he never woke up. So for these cases, you know, not to stay with his grief, which prevented her from grieving. Then she had a contact with him and she felt, you know, all the love. She felt that this problem now had been solved. And this was very, very important. So when the relationships were difficult, confrontational, distant, these contacts can help mending a relationship beyond death. Yeah. Which is amazing, which is amazing. They very much have a deep, profound emotional impact on the majority of your uh, experience who've taken your survey. You know, what is so interesting is to see that this inner relational bond is still there. There's still a dynamic evolution of the relationship. It doesn't stop with, with death. There is still something going on. And it doesn't stop. Death is not final. The relationship goes on. This is a very powerful message of the after-death communication. Thank you for that message. For those listening now who have not had an after-death communication and who want one, what can you suggest to them? Spontaneous ABCs, as the name says, are spontaneous. So you cannot do anything to have a spontaneous and direct after-death communication. And what we know, and that is also interesting, that being a, a believer or not, being an atheist or agnostic, doesn't make any difference at all in the probability of having an ADC and in the nature of the experience. If you believe in an afterlife or you don't believe in an afterlife, it doesn't make any difference for the probability of having an after-death communication. So it's not about your belief system at all, and it's not a religious experience. Although people become much more spiritual after the ADC, they don't become more religious. We have those figures. There's a very small increase in religiosity after the after-death communication, but spirituality doubles after an ADC. So your belief system doesn't make those experiences occur or not. You cannot do anything. People really, really wish for a contact because they're deeply grieving. They're very sad. They would like to have a last contact with their significant other. It doesn't bring the experience. Uh, it doesn't make the experience happen if you really want it. And others who never thought that this could happen, they didn't expect that at all. And they were not waiting for a contact because they didn't thought that would be possible. Then they have to have an ABC. So you can't do anything. But of course, there are a lot of techniques, of methods, of traditions, which apparently can make you have a contact with a deceased person. You have the mirror gazing, you have the induced after-death communication of Botkin. There are other techniques also, other traditions, which apparently make it possible to contact a deceased loved one. But for a spontaneous contact, you cannot do anything for it to occur. 
I hear what you're saying, Evelyn. So a spontaneous and direct after-death communication seems to be initiated perhaps by the deceased loved one. And, it, and your evidence shows that while some people were grieving, some people weren't even thinking of the individual or it had been years since they'd even thought of them. And then the deceased comes to them. When I was doing my guided imagery training many years ago, I was learning a technique to help a person connect with in a relaxed, inner focused state with something called an inner healer, inner guide, a wisdom figure. And during that training, I was in a group of maybe about 30 people. Several people had spontaneous contacts from example, maybe a deceased grandparent or maybe a deceased parent uh, who came to them. Most of the people were very pleased. Often there were great tears. They didn't expect this to happen. The facilitators specifically told us uh, that, well, they, they made sure to not tell us that this was a possibility, although we learned later they knew that this could happen, but they didn't want us to have any expectation involved. And often they received really beautiful messages similar to the one that you're describing. I have since gone on to teach healthcare professionals the same technique. And I've done the same where I don't tell people that this could possibly happen, although now I do. Um, initially I didn't, but now I do because so many people do want these experiences. And many people do have these contacts, although you're right, uh, very few people uh, may not, and then they can get disappointed. But it's it was a beautiful experience to see that this could happen for people, and it often was very meaningful for them. Yes, absolutely. No, absolutely. There are many, many... Uh... Uh, techniques to make to make this happen it can be also under under hypnosis and of course meditation and the more people expect it to happen the less it happens so it's very good not to have any expectation yes but not for the spontaneous ADCs because they just happen you cannot do anything but for for the in, induced contacts with the disease it's good not to have an expectation there is a bigger chance for it uh, uh, to happen. Right, and that's why I think the facilitators of my guided imagery training didn't tell us that it was a possibility, so we didn't have an expectation. Although I'm also a big believer in the power of intention, and I do know several people, myself included, who continue bonds uh, with their loved ones and even have you know inner dialogues or communication, sometimes even on a daily basis <laughs> with their loved one. Yes, well, that is beautiful and certainly very healing and very helpful. But, you know, 27% of our participants were not grieving anymore, the deceased perceived person, or had never been grieving this particular deceased person. So it's really not grief is not a precondition to have an ADC, not at all. And this is, you know... Often, as I said earlier, the argument of a more materialistic point of view that is just, you know, intrapsychic phenomenon, it's not the case. It doesn't match our data because 27% were not bereaved or not anymore bereaved. And 12% and perceived a, pers a person they didn't know. And we also asked them at what level of grief they were at the moment of the ADC, and not not all of them were deeply grieving. Some of them were deeply grieving and very sad, but others had already overcome partly, you know, the grief of bereavement, were a little sad, but not completely crushed anymore by the death of this person. So there are different levels of um, 
of grief when the experience happened. And we also asked them what were, they were doing immediately before the contact occurred. So one could imagine that, you know, the general idea is it happens when somebody is crying and thinking about the deceased person and really so desperate. But that's not at all the case. Most of our participants were busy, active, they were working, they were driving, they were cooking and not thinking about the deceased person at the very moment of the contact. So this is, this is also interesting. Yeah. And some of those contacts, for example, you mentioned that in your in your research, uh, compiled several examples of people where they described that all of a sudden they just got sleepy and they needed to go lie down and then a contact occurred, and that that happens in the hypnopompic and hypnagogic states. Yeah, absolutely. We have two or three of those cases when the person just had this tremendous need to have a nap <laughs> in the middle of the day, but normally they didn't do. And they fell asleep and then the contact happened. Exactly. You have several of those cases. Very interesting. Can you describe a little bit about psychokinetic ADCs, lights flashing, uh, clock stopping? For example, one of my best friends, her grandfather passed a year ago on the family farm, the family farm house. The grandfather clock stopped precisely at the moment of his passing. Yes. They're very common. We have really a very big amount of those accounts in our data collection. They're very, very common. It can be, can be a, t a television or a music device, um, starting by themselves. For example, I think of one case which was nice. Somebody was at home doing some work and all of a sudden her CD player started to play a piece of classical music which her father-in-law, recently deceased, really liked very, very much. So she was very amazed because there's this physical aspect of the CD being put into the CD player and she didn't do it. She didn't do it. So the CD somehow was put in the CD player and started to play. So these kind of cases are interesting because there is a physical aspect, like also a phone, a phone ringing and somebody's on, on, on the other side of the line and the communication or even a conversation can take place. And there is this physical act, um, aspect of the phone ringing. So these cases are very interesting. So we have many of those cases, and I think of one case which is particularly interesting. It's one of our French participants who was um, in her garden with her boyfriend. It was a toxic relationship. She tried to get out of this relationship, but didn't really succeed in doing so, and they were having a conversation. It was in the summer, there was no wind, the weather was beautiful, and she had a gate, you know, with two doors, and all of a sudden, one of the gates shut, and a very heavy gate, and it shut, and it was impossible because it had been attached to a very big tree with a cord, with a triple knot, so just impossible that just by itself this gate would close, and it did. And immediately this woman knew that this was her deceased grandmother. 
whom hadn't, she had known very well because she was a child when her grandmother died. So there was not an extremely close connection because, uh, as I said, she didn't know her very well. And she knew it was her grandmother who did that. And the message was, stop dating this man, he's not good for you. What is important to understand is the physical manifestation, which cannot be explained. It's just, in fact, the pretext for something else that's going on. And what is going on is the fact that the experience, they know who has made this phenomenon have to happen and why and what's the purpose and what's the message and what that will change in, in their life. So this is an interesting case because, you know, we can all have everyday things happen. A device malfunctions. We don't understand why. We lost an object. We find it in a place where we're sure we never put it, but it's there. But we don't attach any importance to that because these are the things of our daily life and it's not important and it doesn't have any meaning. And then all of a sudden something happens, some, something of this order and you know, you know why this happened and you know who made it happen and you know why they made it happen. Another example is a woman who I believe was traveling and she was using uh, somebody else's device to check her email. She logged into the email and was just beginning to check her email and all of a sudden a message, I believe it was her deceased sister, showed up and it was an email describing how she was taking this new journey and how beautiful it was and describing this journey and then she went to go look for the email again and it was gone. Absolutely. I, I remember this case well. Yes, it was the, the mobile phone of her boyfriend because there were some some other manifestations before. She saw some light flickering and she was a bit worried. So she called her boyfriend and she came. And then when he came, this happened with, uh, with the iPhone of her boyfriend. And the message was of her recently deceased sister, it was an email she had sent some weeks ago when she was traveling and she was telling the family that the trip was beautiful, everything went well, the, the trip went well, she arrived safely. And then, of course, she understood that as a message from her deceased sister, this time not talking about the trip she actually took a couple of weeks ago, but about the trip to her new new destination. Absolutely. Evelyn, what has surprised you in your research, uh, particularly with spontaneous and direct after-death communications? The most important message is that our is that our deceased loved ones have survived physical death. This is really the main message, and th that they're well, they're with us, they know what's going on in our lives. Some of them say, said, I know what's going on in the family, you know. They're here with us. We cannot see them. We will never see them again, but they're here with, with us. And this is really the most important message. And that changes everything also for us, because if they have survived death, they will also survive death. So I think this is, this is the main message that it is extremely helpful for the bereavement process is a fact. We, we have the figures. We know it. It is helpful. It brings them emotional healing. It brings them also a new, well, I think, in fact, it makes them help 
understand the true nature of death. If they were afraid of death before, they're much less afraid afterwards because the whole conception of death and therefore of life has changed after the, uh, this experience. So it is a profoundly transformative, very important experience. And we ask them what they think about their experience. And I'm going to give you the figure. 71% said that they treasure it. And 20% said they were very glad they had it. So it is an important experience for the people. They have difficulty sharing it. So this is also one of the reasons why we did this survey, because ADCs need to be more broadly known. It helps people talk about it and also integrate it in their conception of reality. Because you see, and this is in fact, very interesting and very important to see what is going on in the field of consciousness research currently. So many people, very brilliant people, work on this subject. The problem is the nature of, of uh, reality, especially in our Western societies. We have this impression that consciousness is in the brain, and when we die, consciousness is gone. ADCs tell us uh, the contrary as to near-death experiences, as to end-of-life experiences, they tell us, no, consciousness is primary. As long as we're in a physical body, of course, consciousness goes through the brain, but when, when we die, it is still there. And this is yet another piece of the puzzle, you know, ADCs bring another piece of the puzzle to this new conception of, uh, of uh, reality, which is currently so brilliantly done by so many researchers in the field of consciousness research because ADCs, they're, they're not a separate experience, you know, they fit in other death-related experiences like deathbed visions, like near-death experiences. They're all part, I think, of the same kind of phenomena, also uh, uh, terminal uh, lucidity is also part of these experiences. We don't understand fully, of course, not yet, but we're working at it. And if we take all these experiences together and we look at parallels and similarities, it gives us a much better understanding of the nature of uh, reality. And we're happy that with our research project, we can also make a contribution to the consciousness research. And why do you think some people have an after-death communication and others don't? Or do you think some people are having them and they just maybe don't recognize them? No, I don't think that. I'm sure that when you have an ADC, you know it. <laughs> because it's a, it's a very powerful, very impacting experience. It's impossible to have an ADC without being aware of it. I don't, I don't believe that. They know that happened. They know it was real for them. Also, they might not be real for the people around them to whom they talk about it. They're real for them. They're convinced. They're 100% convinced that it was real. So no, you cannot have an ADC without being aware of it. Why do 50 to 60% of people have ADCs and not the others? We don't know. That's a simple answer. We don't know. I am quite Convinced, I cannot really prove it, but I'm quite convinced it has nothing to do with your belief system. Well, we have research showing that 
that your belief system doesn't influence the probability of having an ADC. So it's not a question of your beliefs. It's not a question of your belief in an afterlife at all. It has nothing to do. Although, of course, people didn't believe in an afterlife. Once they had experience, then they believe in it. So the fact of uh, believing in an afterlife doesn't have an impact on the probability of having it. We know that because our figures show that only 1% of our participants do not believe in an afterlife once they had the experience. But it's not a precondition to have an ADC. So we really don't know why maybe half of the population of the planet have ADCs and not the others. It's certainly not the fact that they have them without knowing it. No, I'm sure that's not the case. We don't know. Maybe future research will give us more information on this specific uh, point, but for the moment, we don't know. What do you plan to or hope to research next? Well, we go on with our survey, and in parallel, we have also sub-projects. It would be also interesting to make a large survey on the number of people who have ADCs to get a more precise idea how many people have these experiences. It's possible it's more than 50 to 60 percent. So that would be also an interesting topic to um, investigate. Well, you know, we have 25 research questions which we are now dealing with one by one, and there's still many of them on our list. So we have worked for at least 10 more years. And we will connect, con, uh, collect more data now with the German and the Dutch survey, and then the other, the other uh, language groups we will add. And the, the more data we have, the more information and understanding I think we will get of the after-death communication. So there is a lot, a lot to be investigated. This is really only the very beginning. As we build an understanding what ADCs are, what this is all about, we don't know anything about how they occur. We have some hints, you know, for example, I remember one participant who said that his um, deceased uh, significant other told her, I cannot stay for a long time because it takes me a lot of energy to be here. So I found that interesting. Might be related to energy. We don't know. We don't know. There's so much we don't know. This is why we and others We'll go on uh, investigating ABCs. We are really at the very beginning, I think, only of, of a real understanding of ABCs. But this goes hand in hand with, um, with the investigation on uh, consciousness. You know, as I said, there are similar experiences advancing together. Maybe some go a bit faster, others a little slower, but we're all going into the same direction. And the discoveries they have in one field will help the other field to get a better understanding of their phenomenon they're investigating. So it's just a very fascinating period now, so much going on in the field of consciousness research. And uh, yes, we will go on investigating ADCs, that's for sure. Are there any final thoughts you would like to share? Well, I think it is easy to investigate ADCs and it's easy to talk about them. 
As I told you, in my early years, I studied NDEs, you know, I get lectures, interviews, and I always sensed a little fear of the people about the subject NDEs closely related to death, you know, a bit frightening. People were not so open 20, 25 years ago. It was difficult to talk about these subjects. And on the contrary, I find it extremely easy to talk about ABCs. I see it with, with my books, which are really, uh, you know, selling well, which is important is not that they sell well. What is important is to, is the fact that it shows that people like the subject. They want to know more about ABCs. You know, they buy one book and then the second book because they want to deepen their understanding. I think it's very easy to study and to talk about ABCs because they're not frightening. They're just so beautiful. You know, they are so deeply comforting. They're so reassuring. They're so transformative. So beautiful to have this last contact with somebody you love and to know that the person is well, that you're not alone, that they're with you. So I think it's a very, very easy phenomenon to investigate and it's really a pleasure to talk about it, and I see the interest of people, they're, they're, they're much more open. Well, I'm in Europe and Switzerland. I work a lot in, in uh, France because my book's uh, written in French. So France was very close to those experiences. Maybe uh, 10, 15 years ago, it was very difficult to, to talk about spiritual experiences. Now it's much easier. People, they open themselves up to these experiences, and it's it's just a real joy to talk about ABCs, a very, very easy topic. Well, thank you so much for all that you have shared and the fact that you speak four languages, English, French, Spanish, and Swiss German, really lends itself well to this international research. And thank you so much for sharing all that you've shared. We look forward to more coming from you, Evelyn, and your team members. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and it was such a joy. Thank you very much. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.